Well, grab your Bibles. I hope you have them with you and find it's going to be the last chapter in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66. We've been going through all of Isaiah, and now we're on the last chapter, right? So today and next week, uh, we'll be in the last chapter of Isaiah. And it's a new year and a lot of new things starting up, so it seems a little strange that we're finishing up this incredible study, uh, but I hope it'll be a blessing to you over the next couple of weeks. You know, when it comes to um, Isaiah, I, I think you probably, if you're just joining us, could write this down somewhere in a flyleaf of your Bible. The, the big picture, the big idea, that, that's the big theme of Isaiah is this. The big theme of Isaiah is this. God says, trust me. Trust me. If you trust me, there are consequences. If you don't trust me, there's going to be consequences. And there are two ways to live. You can live trusting me, or you can live not trusting me. Now, all of Isaiah goes into how God's people kind of ebbed and flow out of trusting him. And the consequences that they enjoyed when they trusted him, and the consequences that they endured when they didn't trust him. And we're no different. Today, um, if we trust God, then there's going to be incredible, incredible benefits and grace. If we don't trust God, there are going to be things we will endure. Why? Because God's not this thing. He's not a religion. He's not a church building. Can I have an amen here? God is one whom we can have a relationship with. Can you imagine that? We have a relationship with God. God's not about a religion. He's not called us into a church. And sometimes I'll ask folks like, hey, man, are you a Christian? And they'll say, well, I'm, I'm Catholic or I'm Presbyterian or, you know, this or that. God didn't call us into a church. Primarily, He called us into a relationship with Himself. And so that's what Christianity is about. It's about what Isaiah is concerning as well. Relationships are so key, so key. We live in a day when relationships um, are struggling and struggling for a number of reasons. We know that relationships struggle because we are fallen creatures. We are sin, and sin brings all kind of, of, of a brokenness and even into relationships. But I, I think it's because we live in a day in which relationships are largely transactional. By, by that I mean, if you do for me, then I'll in turn do whatever it is that you want. So there's like this idea, as long as you meet your end of the bargain, I'll, eat, I'll, I'll meet my end of the bargain, right? Where do we learn that? I think we've learned it in a lot of different places. Maybe you learned it growing up and you watched your family, you watched maybe so many of you today would say, I watched my family break up because mom and dad split up because there, there wasn't um, a relationship built on self-sacrifice, built on love, which is first and foremost, and then sacrifice, which comes second. Um, but it was on really a kind of, if I look at it, and, and kind of in those terms, Pastor, it was probably a transactional relationship. Like my, my mom didn't make my dad happy anymore. My dad didn't make my mom happy. And so they just went their separate ways. But when it comes to real relationship, it's not, and I mean biblical relationship, it, it, it's not in, in the Bible that we see this type of, of, of love. We, we see a sacrificial love in which we offer ourselves to each other in service. That's what Jesus did for us. And that's not a negative thing. That's a very positive thing. 
Like sometimes when we say, if you love your spouse, you'll serve your spouse, you might say, oh, great. (laughs) But instead, if you love your spouse, you will serve your spouse brings a great bit of joy to your heart if you really understand what that means. Because you love them. So in this relationship with God, we, we, we have to understand, too, that there is a, a sacrificial part of that relationship in which we offer ourselves to Him. But we have to also recall that He's offered Himself to us. I don't know where you've learned about relationships. I was just like, this is probably not a, ever a good thing to do. But I'm like, where do people learn about relationships today? And so the like top 20 TV programs came up. And uh, so I didn't know about some of these, these, these TV programs that teach on relationship. One of them was called Lucifer. I didn't even know there was a show called Lucifer. I would suggest you not watch any show called Lucifer. I have no idea what it's about. It's probably a good idea to stay away from Lucifer. I, I knew this one would probably come up, The Bachelor, and then The Bachelorette, right? Probably not the best places to learn about how to have a relationship with the opposite sex, right? Or where is it that people are finding uh, information about relationships? Maybe today it's on Instagram or some other, uh, some other post where we're reading about what people say about relationships. But the person who created us for relationship is the one who's spoken about relationships, and I think we should go to him and find out about how to have a right relationship with others. But it starts primarily with a right relationship with him. Let me, let me get this way. And that's a longer uh, kind of an introduction, but we'll get to the text here in just a sec because they're going to be in a text for two weeks. But, but here's what I, what I want to tell you. When, when, you, when you get married, you, you basically do this. You basically say, I'm ready now to become one with another person, right? Is that right? One preacher said it this way. The, the, the wedding ceremony and the funeral ceremony are similar Except at the wedding, you get to smell your own flowers. But in both occasions, there's a death. So in, in marriage, there's a death of self. I'm no longer me. I'm no longer, now, don't lose my individuality, my personality. It's not, it's not like you go to Home Depot and you like mix paints together. Okay, you're one, you're one color now. No, you're, you're one in, in sacrificial commitment to one another. Right? And so when you come down, here's what another preacher said. Whenever, hey, he told this guy that was getting married, like, he got any advice for me? Here, here's the advice the preacher gave to him. He said, yeah, when you say you do, I do, you're done. Because you're making a commitment to love that gal for the rest of your life, and she's doing the same thing for you. You're entering into not a contractual relationship, but into a oneness. How many of you have been married more than seven years? How, how many of you have learned, all right, you don't have to raise your hand here, but how many of you have learned that that oneness part, like two becoming one, didn't happen overnight? Like you didn't come home from your honeymoon and you're like, we're one. No. In fact, you would probably say, we're still trying to figure it out and we're still growing in oneness. Is that true or not? Help out the ones who are about to get married or just got married, right? How many of you say it's taken years and you got a long way to go? All right, yes. Because there is a constant dying to self and living for the person that you chose. So the way that we put it in marriage conferences that we do, and the way we teach is this. We just make a very simple statement. You probably heard it before is this. Continue to choose the one you chose. Like when you chose to get married, 
You chose to say to that person, I'm going to love you. I'm going to love you. It's going to be like in sickness and in health, right? Remember this? It's going to be for better, for worse. It's going to be in whether you're rich or poor. Amen? Till what? That's a pretty good promise. And what did Jesus say? And what man, uh, what God puts together, let no man put asunder. So like if you have, you're like, oh, wait a minute, Pastor, we've, I've been remarried, I'm divorced. God, God is gracious, isn't he? Thank God for that. But let me just, just stick with me here. Don't go there. Don't go there. Stick with me on, stick with me on coming into oneness in relationships. That takes a great deal of commitment, sacrifice, forgiveness, God-graced love. To choose the one that you chose. To get up every day and say, I'm going to love you no matter what. I'm going to love you with the love God's given me. In the same way, in the same way, when you got saved, you chose to say, I do. And you entered into a relationship with a living God, a relationship, y'all. And in that relationship, God made a promise to you to transform you from one level of glory to the next level of glory, to make you into the very image of His Son, and that would be a painful process, but He would not ever stop doing it. In fact, He's promised to finish what He began in you. God committed to you that I am going to transform you. And our commitment to Him is to say, I need transforming. And submit to that transformation. Trusting Him. And trusting Him. And this is a process that takes a lifetime. If you've been saved, like if I ask you how long you've been saved, how many of you have been saved over seven years, you would say, man, I've been, how many, well, let's just ask that. How many has been saved over seven years? How many of you would say, I'm still being transformed into the image of Christ, right? How many of you say, I got a long way to go. Like the little shirt on the little, little onesie I saw that this baby had, right? Now, don't give up on me. God's still working on me, right? Oh my good night. Wait till you get to be 16. <laughs> but we're a work in progress, and who's still doing the work? God is. And so what is our responsibility in this is to constantly choose the one who cho- that we chose. We chose to say yes to God. By His grace we did. By His grace, it was all by His grace that we did. All by His goodness, all by His grace we did. But we chose to say yes to God. And there's a constant, listen, I'm talking to Christians here, right? Some of you stuck. Some of you are like, I, you know, my, my, my heart is a little, little, little dry. We have to choose to choose Him. I was in college and I'd been saved when I was young and I was in college and I met this kind of, some dilemmas. I don't know if this is, this probably is true of all of you, but, but I, I met a dilemma. I was like, okay, I, I think I'm going to go in this direction of ministry. I'm going to give my life to full-time ministry. But I began to think, and, and, and I began to think, is that where God wants me? All right? So I'm not one of these guys that were like, say, I never wrestled with the call. I didn't really wrestle with the call, but I just wanted to do what God wanted me to do. But I began to look at people around me that were going into business and doing different things with their lives that were Christians. And I thought, that, I could do that. Lord, I don't have to go into ministry to serve you, which is true. And I don't have to be in full-time ministry to be in ministry because we're all in ministry, and that also is true. Amen. But I had to come to this conclusion that God had called me to full-time ministry, and I had to all over again choose the one whom I chose. 
to say, yes, here it is. I'll, I'll go. I'll do it. I can remember riding down the road one day and, and my heart really not being fully committed. Because you can be a Christian. I want to be clear here. You can be a Christian and God has your heart. But though he's resident, he's not president. Like, like you're, you're, you're trying to take back. You're drifting away. And so I was, I was there. I was, I, was, I was serving the Lord. I was probably in most every way doing, doing what God wanted. But, but I had to make that cho- choice. God, I, I want to be all in. I want to be all in. And God got a hold of my heart. Has, has that happened to you? Has it happened just one time or two times or three times? There have been so many times in my life where I've been shaken up by listening to the preaching of God's Word, reading God's Word, or being underneath God's Word, shaken up where I was like, okay, God, you, you need this part of my heart because I recognize now that I've been holding this. I've been holding out. I've been holding on. In other words, it is a normal rhythm of a Christian to come to recognize that they have to, again, choose the one they chose. Are you doing that? I want you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 66 because the book closes this way. And you might think, wow, this is an interesting way for the book to close. And if you think that, you would be right along the lines of all scholars who have also come to that conclusion. It's the end of Isaiah 66. So Isaiah 66 chapters, church, class. How many books are in the Bible, by the way? 66, right? So there's 66 chapters, and that, 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 that tells us a great deal about this book. Here's the conclusion, because the last six chapters really have to do with end times matters, right? End times matters. And I was reading about the unity of Isaiah, how that Isaiah wrote about things were happening when he was alive, things that were going to happen after he was dead, and things were going to happen at the very end. And because of that, people were like, Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. There were different authors that wrote Isaiah. And I was reading a book called The Unity of Isaiah. Because I believe God can give a prophecy about things that are going on right now, things that are only going to happen tomorrow, and things are going to happen in the very end. I was reading this prophecy, uh, this book. This is what it said based on these verses. Look with me in verse 22. For as, or verse 22, say amen. All right, good. That wasn't enough. Isaiah 66, 22. Make sure you're with me. Y'all there? Okay, cool. For as the new heavens and the new earth that... I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. This is an awesome promise. I'm going to make the heavens new. I'll make the earth new. We covered that last week. I'm going to give you a new name, and it's going to last forever. This is good news. This is good news. This is the end. This is when everything is made right, and we're in heaven. Verse 23, from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship me, declares the Lord. This is awesome. Look at this way. In the end, everyone's going to worship me forever, forever. That, that's, the, that's the terminology here. This is the, what God's trying to say. But then look, verse 24. It's the last verse, last verse of Isaiah. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. I didn't expect Isaiah to end that way. I was reading this Unity of Isaiah by John 
golden, golden A, and here's what he said. The book of Isaiah almost ends with the declaring of the new moon and the Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh will worship before me, but it actually ends with a declaration. People will go out and look at the corpses of individuals who rebelled against me because their worm will not die. The close of the book thereby places a decision before the readers. You will, you will be like the people who bow down before Yahweh God or people whose bodies are thrown into a pile for decay and burning. There's a choice you have to make. In fact, there are two ways to live in Isaiah 66, going along with the, old, the whole book. There's two ways to live. There are two choices to make. There are two places to spend eternity based on those choices and those ways you go. And I want to look at that this morning, and I want to look at just the beginning part of it, because I want, us to he- I want to help us as Christians, as believers, as the people of God, to continue to choose the one whom we chose. And for those of you who've never been saved, to realize that God is gracious and allows you to be saved if you will repent of your sin and believe on Him. You can be saved. You can be saved. Because there's basically two choices to make about God. Either I'm going to follow him or I'm not. And that becomes, that's based on whether or not I'm going to trust him or I'm not. And it it, it eventuates in what? Where you will spend eternity. In the new heaven, new earth, or tormented forever and ever. And Jesus picked up on this in case you were like, I'm new to this. Is this real? Jesus in Mark 9 picked up on these verses and said, there is a place called hell. It is a place where the worm never dies. Let's look at this. Look at verse 1, chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord. Who's saying this? Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Now, again, the, the meta message or story of Isaiah is you can trust me. Why can you trust the Lord? Why? Because he is great. How great is he? Well, look what he says about himself. Heaven's my throne. Earth's a pretty big place. Pretty big place. And yet it's like an ottoman in your house to God. A footstool. That's all it is. The the reality is there's no throne that can hold our God. And there's no temple that can encompass his greatness. So what kind of building are you going to build for me where I will be contained? What kind of building are you going to build for me where you will say, this is where God is? Because I'm bigger than some building, right? I'm bigger than some organization. I'm bigger than a religion, y'all. I'm bigger than a denomination. I'm bigger than a system that man sets up. In fact, I'm bigger than the heavens. How big are the heavens? We have no idea. The best telescopes that we've developed still haven't gazed that far. And our God's bigger than that. His point is this. Guys, you can trust me because I'm big. I'm bigger than anything you face. I'm great. I'm sovereign. And you can trust me. And then he asked the question to the Israelites. And by the way, what kind of house are you going to build for me anyway that I'll stay in, where I need to go rest? You think I'm tired? You think you could tame me? You think you could cage me in a building? I'm not tame, and I'm not, I'm not confined to a building. Now, here's the picture. Israelites, Israelites, people of God, the beginning of Isaiah were warned by Isaiah because you have rebelled against your God. God's going to take 
the enemy, which is the Babylonian kingdom, and he's going to empower them, and they're going to come, and they're going to destroy your land, and they're going to deport you, they're going to exile you as hostages into Babylon. Now, we read about all of this in the Bible. Only in history, we know it's true. It happened. But then God set them free. Now they're coming home. We know that in 516 AD, uh, BC, 516 BC, they rebuilt a temple that had been destroyed. Before they rebuilt it, they're coming home, they're weeping. Why? Because there's no temple. There's no temple. Imagine this. If your whole life revolved around your religion and there was nowhere to practice your religion, then you're going to be beside yourself because you don't know what to do. To which God says, I'm not looking for a building, y'all. I'm looking for hearts to dwell in. I'm looking for people. The building, yes, I want, but that is only a reflection and should be of the worship in your heart. You need to understand that God didn't want to be confined to a temple. That was really an ancient way of thinking, as a matter of fact. In the old days, in ancient Israel and ancient Middle East, people had the idea that, that gods were tribal. Gods were part of a nation. A nation would build a temple or edifice for that God. They would worship that God, sacrifice that God, and that God was then to be a servant to them. The people of the God of Molech, for instance, what did they do? They offered their children, can you imagine this, their babies in sacrifice to the God Molech so that Molech would be bound to give to them whatever they asked. Their mindset was, there's this God, Molech. We have children. We offer our children as sacrifices to Molech. Now, Molech has to make us happy and comfortable and rich. Now, that, you said that, that is a crazy, horrible mindset, isn't it? But look at America today. Do we not yet still do that same thing by sacrificing our children in order to do what? So that we can be happy and comfortable and they don't get in the way of the pursuit of our dreams. No new mindset. That's an old mindset. And so God says to his people two things. You can build me a temple because you think that I belong to you? You think I belong to you? No, you belong to me. You're going to build a temple so that you can say, look what we've done for you. Look what we've done in service for you. Look what we've sacrificed in order that we might what? Own you. So that our service to you, does God want our service? Yes, but he doesn't want our service that relays a mechanism in our heart that gives this sentiment. Since I served you, God, now you must serve me. Could you imagine that attitude? This is the attitude people had to their idols. They sacrificed their children so that idol would give them what they want. And God said, you want to do that for me? You want to build me a temple so that you could say, look what we did for you so that now I'm obligated to you? And bring me into servitude. No way. 
Well, as a matter of fact, what is it that you've built for me that I haven't given to you anyway? Right? It's not that God's not grateful in this sense, in this sense, that his people serve him. He desires our service. But he desires first our obedience. The people of God said, well, we'll build you a temple, and then there you'll be our God. We'll use you. And God says, no, you don't understand. Not only can you not hold me in a temple, it's not a place I go to rest. Why? Because the people of God had a responsibility to take the name and the glory of God to the other nations. And they were failing in that responsibility. Listen to me. Israel had a responsibility of not only giving their hearts to the Lord, but in taking his name to people who are far from God so they as well could give their hearts to God. They were, they, they had a responsibility, if I could put it in our terminology, they had a responsibility of personal evangelism, of taking the name of God to the nations. How were Gentiles saved in the Old Testament, by the way? How were people like us saved? We weren't God's chosen people. We weren't Israel. How were we saved? Here's how. Israel was to take the message of God to us and share the gospel of the Messiah coming to be a sacrifice for our sin. The plan of salvation didn't come about in the church age. The plan of salvation came about in the Garden of Eden when man sinned and God said, I'm going to create a way. And then he made a people chosen for him. God's chosen people to do what? They were chosen to do what? They were chosen to be his people, to take his name to the nations. You know what they said? Now we'll just build a temple and we'll bring our sacrifices. And God says, I'm going to disrupt that. I don't need a temple. In fact, I'll let the Babylonians come in and actually destroy the temple. Three different occasions the temple of God has been destroyed. If you were to go to Israel today, you would look and see that there is nothing left of the temple that was once there. And there's a praying for that temple to come. And there will be a temple once again erected in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it will be on God's holy hill. And that temple once again will receive sacrifices from God's people. But this time, it will be from people who have a heart that is ruled by Jesus Christ, the Messiah. That's what's to come. You mean, Scott, you tell me they're going to build a temple again? Oh, yeah, they are. They're, the Israelites are going to build a temple. They're already collecting. They're already ready. They're, they, they've got relics. They, they, have, they have plans. And what are they going to do there? They're going to worship Jesus there through their sacrifices. Why would they sacrifice? Because a sacrifice was to be a statement of faith. A sacrifice that's acceptable to God is a sacrifice that is given from the heart. Look with me, if you will, in verse 2. All these things my hands have made so that all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one whom I will look. I think we should pay attention here. Because God says, look, I'm not looking for a building as much as I'm looking for people who's what? Have a heart. What type of heart do they have? Look at this. They are the ones who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. In other words, here's what God says. I'm looking to live in the hearts of people who are humble. 
Humble, why? Because they recognize their need for salvation and their need for grace. And contrite in spirit. The word humble has the idea of being pushed down by something greater. That when we begin to see God for who He is, we begin to see ourselves for who we are. We see His greatness and His holiness and we realize we're not. And therefore we become humble and we say, I am in need of that type of salvation that God offers. And that contriteness is not about one act of sin, but in the reality that that contriteness brings about our personality and our proneness to weakness and lameness of heart where we want to serve ourselves instead of God. God says, I'll look at a person who readily admits, God, I need you because my heart has drifted away. They tremble at his word. They hear his word and they're shaken up by it. Have you ever been there? Have you as a Christian, one who has chosen to follow Christ, been in that moment, I know you have, where you heard the Word of God, where you read the Word of God, where the Word of God was impressed on you and you were shaken up and you said, oh my God, help me. Look at verse 3. Because it's here that God says, look, you have two choices to make and it's really about how you're going to have a relationship with Him. The people of God are described this way in verse 3 in a comparative way. And when I read this, I want you to see this is a comparison, not a contrast. For instance, let's look at the first line. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. It would be easy to say there are those who slaughter oxes and there are those who kill men and they're two different people, two different types of people, two hearts, two different types of hearts. I mean, an ox is the most valuable possession an Israelite would have owned in this day that Isaiah has written. If you were to walk out to an Israelite's pasture and they had an ox, it meant they were pretty wealthy. And that ox would be the most weighty sacrifice that could be offered to God. So when you went to the temple and you saw Israelites coming to the temple offering an ox that had been through a process of purification that had been deemed kosher, ready to be offered to the Lord in that sense, that it was worthy offering, then you would say, that person must really love God. Look, they have given so much. But y'all, look at me real quick, just, just to bring this home. Man looks where? On the outside, where does God look? This is how stunning this is, that God says, I want your heart. I want a humble heart. You can sacrifice, but I desire obedience rather than sacrifice. God says, I desire your heart more than your sacrifice. Yes, there's sacrifice. It's based on a heart. Jesus said, God is looking for those who worship him, and then you shall serve him after you worship him. God's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. What follows worship is service. And here God says, because your heart is not right, you offer the ox, and to me, you might as well be committing murder. God sees the sacrifice of the ox differently than man does because it's offered in a very impure way from the heart. God says it's like murder, but he goes further. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks the dog's neck. Now look, you know what God says? 
There are those who are offering sacrifices to me. They're coming to the temple. They're worshiping me. They're offering the lambs, which I require. But you may as well be offering me a dog. Now, don't think of the dog as our dogs. Like, I know it was cold last night. You put your dog in a sweater and make sure it was warm. These dogs that Isaiah is talking about are the ravenous, mangy, dangerous, wild dogs that seek whom they may devour, if I could put it that way. They were dirty. God says, you may as well be offering a dirty dog to me. He says it further, look in verse 3. He presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. If you know anything about God's law to the Israelites, they were to have nothing to do with pigs. They weren't to be around pigs and certainly weren't to eat them. And to think this, that somebody would offer God a sacrifice of pig's blood. How unclean, how unacceptable. And yet, a grain offering is, is one offering that's acceptable to God, even commanded by God. But because it's brought from a faithless heart, God says that grain offering might as well be pig's blood. He doesn't stop there. He who makes a memorial of offering of frankincense like the one who blesses an idol. In other words, all this incense of offering that's being burned for me may as well be given to Molech and Baal and all these other foreign gods. Why? Because you think I'm like they are. You think that by your sacrifice, I come into your servitude. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not that kind of God. To clear it up, God puts it this way at the end of verse 3. These that do this, these that do this, have chosen their own ways and their soul delights in their abominations. In other words, you've chosen to go the way of your flesh. And you delight in it. In fact, the word delight here in verse 3 could actually be translated chosen. Because we do choose what we delight in. No wonder God says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Here's what God says. This is the reason that I'm going to come against you. I'm going to come against you because you thought that you could make me serve you like some foreign God. And the reason you did that is because you don't have a heart for me and love me, but you are only trying to manipulate me into doing what your flesh desires. Is that ugly? We don't like the word manipulation. We don't like that word because we don't like to see manipulation occur. We don't like to see it in the church. And there are too many denominations and organizations and churches that have manipulated people by setting up legalistic standards and abusing people spiritually. And we don't like it when we see it and we recognize it and we say, that is so wrong. We don't like it when men stand up and take God's word and manipulate the scriptures and try to twist them and add to them and say what God has not said. What do you think God feels about manipulation? When men begin to live in such a way that they think they can manipulate God into getting what they want from him. Look what I gave. Look what I did. Look how I sacrificed. Do you remember in Matthew 7, Jesus said this? There are going to be people who stand before me and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, have we not been, done many wonderful works in your name? 
I mean, we cast out devils in your name. We went to the sick and healed the sick in your name. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. They may have done the good works, but they didn't do them in Jesus' name. They did the sacrifices, and the only claim they have for heaven is what they've done. So, God, because of what we've done, you ought to accept us. Hey, Gospel 101 again. The only person who's acceptable to God is the one who recognizes I can't do anything to be acceptable to God, but Jesus did, so I'm going to trust Jesus and his work and his righteousness and what he accomplished on the cross. And then in our living as gospel people, to continue to choose to give our hearts to God. Look at verse 4. I'm going to bring this to a close, but here verse 4, it says, I will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen, but they did what was evil in my eyes. And I chose that in which I, and I, and chose, excuse me, that in which I did not delight because they chose to do that which they delighted in, in their flesh, and that which is not delightful in my eyes, I will make a choice, God says. I will make a choice. Verse 5, hear the word of the Lord. You who remember, you tremble at his word. Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. But it is they who shall be put to shame. The sound of an uproar in the city, the sound of the temple and the sound of the Lord rendering recompense on his enemy. You know what he says? He says, listen, your brothers who hate you are the ones who are the ones who are bringing scorn on you for giving all of your allegiance to me. Why is it difficult to give all of our heart to the Lord today? Well, a number of reasons. One, our flesh. We want to do what our flesh delights in. Two, the world in which we live in. We live in a world that is always against us. But three. They're actually people who call themselves the people of God who scorn people who actually are willing to serve the Lord with all of their heart. It's a hard choice. Jesus told his disciples, your own brothers are going to cast you out of the synagogue. They're going, to mourn, they're, they're going to scorn your name. It is a hard choice to say, I'm going to give it all. I'm going all in. I'm going to live for the Lord. Why? Because there are going to be plenty of people around you who have the form of godliness, denying the power of it. They're going to look down their nose at you and say, come on, calm down a little bit. Calm down a little bit. See, whenever it is you say this, I'm going to give my life to the mission field, you're going to have plenty of good meaning except flesh-filled people who are going to say, hold on a minute, have you, you're, really going to, you're really going to go on the mission field? You're going to sell all you have to go to the mission field? You're going to let your kids move away and maybe never see them except maybe once or twice a year for the, come on, calm down. You think God really wants that? It's not always easy when you step across the line and choose the one you chose and say, I'm going to get you all in for the Lord, or even around the people of God sometimes, y'all. This is counter-Christian culture. It's not just counter-cultural. This is counter-Christian cultural living. When I say, I want my heart to be His. But there is great joy. In fact, I want you to read verse 14. I'll finish here. You shall see and your heart shall rejoice and your bones shall flourish like the grass and the servants shall show, to his servants he shall show 
there's indignation to his enemies. There is incredible joy to the person who says, my heart is Christ's home. You have a choice to make, and I do too. And that choice is whether or not continue to choose the one whom I chose. When I chose to follow God, I chose to follow him with all of my heart, to say no to my flesh and to say no to this world and so say no to all of those things that rob me of my worship of him. I can't come into the church on Sunday and offer up praise to God that's an acceptable sacrifice when all through the week my mind has been in the gutter. I can't. I can't come into church and write a check for the tithe to erase all the iniquity that I've committed. There's some of you who feel that way. There's some of you that are living in such a way that you're offering sacrifices to God. You, hey, you know, I do go to church. I do serve the Lord. And I do try to be the best person, but you're living in iniquity. There's some of you are sleeping with another person, but you're like, but I'm a, I'm a Christian and I love the Lord and I'm do, doing things for God. But your sacrifices have been mixed and polluted with worldliness. God wants our hearts, all of our hearts. God doesn't look just for a building to live in. God looks for hearts that he can dwell in, hearts that are fully his. The reason that he allowed the suffering to come on Israel in the way that he did is because their hearts weren't fully his. That's what he's asking for this morning. Psalm chapter 1 puts it this way, and maybe you've read Psalm 1, and I'll finish with this text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law does he meditate day and night. And he is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields fruit in its season. And his leaf does not wither, and all that he does prospers. The wicked are not so. Psalm 1 gives incredible, incredible promises to those who trust in the Lord, who follow after the Lord with all their heart, but the wicked are not so. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked shall not stand in the way of judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the path of the wicked shall perish. We have, we have two ways to live. Trusting the Lord with all of our heart. Going the way that he wants us to go and enjoying the consequences or the fruit of that. Or we can live our own way, trusting in our own, trusting in our own, and experiencing the suffering that brings. Christian, where are you? Where's your heart today? How is your heart today? Is it, is it fully the Lord's? And is this one of those moments for you as a Christian who love the Lord, who knows the Lord loves you, to once again, by His grace and by His power, choose all over again the one that you chose. Choose the one you chose. He will never not choose you. He will never, ever write you off. He'll never divorce Himself from you. No one can pluck you out of His hand. But will you, by His grace, confess your sin, repent, and if your heart is far from Him, choose again the one you chose. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in this part of the text of, uh, of the Old Testament. That God is a reminder that, God, your kingdom is coming, but is in a sense here in our hearts. The throne, God, that you reign on now is our heart. And God, where we hold back, God, I pray today, we'll give. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?